Garfield et Jeffin Welcome to yet another action-packed episode of Gafe to Japan. I am your host, Johnny. And as you fine folks know, Gafe to Japan is about two dudes, booze, Japan, and the news. And this is episode number 568. But um, today's a little bit uh, different, Faders. Uh, today it's not two dudes, booze, Japan, and the news. It is three dudes, booze, Japan, and the news. And actually, our news today is not the news in Japan. It's the news of Japan. This is... Here at the one and only Sakamichi. Sakamichi Brewing Company located in West Japan, West Tokyo actually. West Tokyo. West Tokyo. What's the name of this uh, station? Tachikawa Station. Tachikawa Station, which is booming from what I understand. This station, like what, five years ago was very slow, kind of a quiet little place. But right now, there's more and more buildings building up and stuff. This station right here is becoming really incredible on the west side of Tokyo. This is kind of like a place to visit. And I recommend each one of you guys to come out here and visit this place because of the one and only Sakamichi Brewing Company. Guys, thank you so much for having me here today. Thanks for having us, man. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, awesome. And um, I know who you guys are, but these guys don't, and I would love for them to know who you guys are. What are your names and what do you do? Uh, my name's Daniel, and I uh, started Sagamichi Brewing with Matthew. Uh, I'm Matthew Boynton, uh, and I am the co-founder, together with Daniel, of uh, Sagamichi Brewing, and uh, the brewmaster here as well. The brewmaster. I, I guess Dan is the drinking master. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> Drink, drinking the beer is the most important job. I, I, just, I just want everyone to understand that. If, it doesn't matter how good the beer we make is. If nobody drinks it, it's totally pointless. So. I really hope you're paying. <laughs> <laughs> paying? No, no, I get paid. This is this is a, a dream opportunity, really. Oh my if you god! If you find a job like this, just drinking beer and getting paid for it, I recommend it. So, Daniel, did you hire Matthew, or did Matthew did you hire Daniel? Is it the uh, chicken and the egg kind of concept yeah, here? That's a tough question. <laughs> I'll let you answer that one. It was a collaborative uh, decision, but basically, I wanted someone who was going to make beer that I wanted to drink. Uh, so I enlisted Matthew's help to make me a shit ton of beer, <laughs> constantly. Fantastic. So far, it's working out. Yeah, I noticed you guys have a uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight beers on the tap. So I mean, you're a busy guy, or you're a busy guy. Actually, you're both pretty busy. If you're <laughs> making it, and he's drinking it. It's pretty much a nonstop flow at this point, right? I have to admit that sometimes I cross the picket line and I do drink some of the beer as well. I'm no. Sorry. I'm sorry about that. Occasionally. Occasionally. Occasionally we allow it. No. Oh man, that's insane. And um, 
going back to this place, I gotta say this place is beautiful. You guys got some amazing art on the walls. Uh, the lighting is spectacular. I mean, you've got this open door system right here that is just bringing in amazing light when the doors open. I mean, this place is a really nice place. It's completely chill. I mean, I really like this place. Um, actually, there's nobody here because it's a little bit before opening hours, but I can just imagine this place packed easily. Hmm. Yeah, we, uh, we spent a long time looking for our location and it took, uh, I mean, we got really, really lucky actually when we found it because we, this place had everything we wanted. It was the right size, uh, but especially we want to be on the first floor because if people can't see you, uh, then how are they going to know if you have to climb stairs or read a sign outside on that? On the sidewalk then you're gonna lose business mm -hmm. for that so we wanted first floor and we wanted big windows uh, we didn't want there to be any um, you know with the big windows people can see what they're getting into from yep. outside they can, yeah, look in, they can see people having a good time mm -hmm. you can see the taps from outside and the tap boards lovely taps uh, so and we can make aggressive eye contact with people going by and draw them in uh, through sheer just peer pressure basically uh, so yeah, we, we're really happy with the location and the, the big windows are a part of it for sure. The location's great. I like that there's a gun shop directly across the street. There's alcohol <laughs> and firearms mix, obviously, as yeah. everyone knows. Any good American knows. Yeah, I'm American. I'm from Detroit, so uh, <laughs> yeah, guns and alcohol kind of go in our nature. <laughs> and, and you're from the U.S. too, right? I'm from Ohio, yeah. Oh, Ohio. Yeah. All right, great. Ohio State, U of M. Right, yeah. Yeah, I never played football. You can tell by my uh, size. <laughs> I'm a fan. <laughs> and you're from the UK? That's right, yeah. I'm from Birmingham in the UK. Wow, so you guys got two different amazing perspectives on how beer is and what it should be. So it's like a beautiful combination. It's like wasabi and sushi. Can I say that? <laughs> Guns and alcohol. Guns and alcohol. There we go. I didn't want to go there, but uh, yeah, we're probably going to offend some people in this episode, and I'm liking it. Um, one thing that we're not going to offend anybody by, be by, <laughs> but one thing we're not going to offend anybody by is this beer right here. And um, what is this lovely beverage that I'm looking at? So this is our flagship beer. This one is called Shibasaki Session. Uh, it's the first beer that we made here uh, by ourselves. Nice. Uh, and we're actually, we're in Shibasaki Cho in Tachikawa right here. So we wanted to, to name the beer after the, uh, the location where we were to show how we could contribute to the local community here. Marvelous, marvelous. Um, if you don't mind, can I get a nose and a kampai? A nose and a kampai? Yeah, you know, like whiskey, can I smell this, kampai it, and then have a taste? Absolutely. A taste of Rooney, here we go. Oh, one word comes to mind, it begins with an M, magical. Magical. <laughs> magical. Magical. Absolutely spectacular. If this is your flagship, you guys can't go wrong. And obviously, just by looking around, you are not going wrong. Can I get a Kampai, gentlemen? Thank Cheers. You. Cheers. 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 There's a bit of ASMR there. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I like it. I like it. I'm happy, my soul is happy, and my stomach is getting a little bit bigger, and it will be getting a lot bigger in the next hour because I'll probably be having three of these. <laughs> uh, oh, where do I write up a tab over there? <laughs> oh, man. All right, I gotta ask you guys a couple of questions. I've got a lot of questions for you guys, and I'm gonna start off with the name Sakamichi. What does it mean? Uh, it means steep road or mountain road. Mm -hmm. uh, so Matt and I are, uh, we became friends through cycle touring. 
uh, like loading all of our camping gear up on bikes and riding around for you know a week, ten days at a time around Japan. So we've been all over Japan uh, on our bikes on lots of different trips, and uh, we felt like uh, we've explored a lot of the, the steep roads, a lot of the mountain roads in Japan. Um, so we thought it was a, a good name for a brewery because we, on these trips, obviously we drank a lot of beer, um, and we feel like beer. You know, obviously we don't endorse drinking and riding, but uh, beer as like, uh, you know, at the bottom of the hill to kind of get you motivated to take the sting out of climbing or, or maybe uh, after you come down the other side, whether we're talking about just cycling or more metaphorically, like, you know, when you're working on, on a difficult task or something, you're trying to climb some mountain in your personal life, your professional life. Uh, having a beer to like maintain your motivation or having a beer when you finish something you achieve something we feel like beer fits all of those kind of those moments in your life right uh, whenever you're dealing with a steep road whether you're going up it or you're coming down it uh, having a beer to celebrate or to keep yourself going fits in there so uh, that's kind of anything to add to that the meaning we also found that it was like it's easy for foreigners to pronounce Mm -hmm. um, it has a Japanese flavor, so we feel like if we ever end up sending our beer to like international beer competitions or something like that, that it has a Japanese ring to it, even though it's run by two foreign guys. Smart. Uh, so yeah, all those reasons. Anything else? It is a. Uh, it means steep road, right? Mountain roads, mm -hmm. difficult roads, uh, and making a brewery we have found is also a bit of a steep road. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting road that we've chosen for ourselves, so it fits in a metaphorical sense as well as in a literal sense. Um, the only issue that we have is that, as you've seen outside, the road here is not steep at all. It's completely flat. So quite often when customers come in, they're saying, why, why are you guys called steep road? This road is not steep at all. You're, you're kind of misadvertising yourselves here. All these foreigners don't know kanji. But uh, it, gives us, it gives us the opportunity to tell the story of, of how we came up with the name. That is great. That is awesome. Yeah, I was very curious about that because when I saw your logo, I was like, okay, mountains, right? We are on the west side of Tokyo. So then I checked the map. I was like, well, Fuji's way over here. <laughs> yeah. but we, we do get a lot of people coming in uh, who have been out camping or out cycling for the day. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the gateway to you know, the mountains and the countryside out west. Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of people, sometimes Sunday afternoon, we get people coming back from camping trips and things. They're going to hit Tachikawa and then disperse to their home stations, but they come back with their friends they went camping with and they stop in here and have a few beers before they head back home. Uh, so we do get a lot of other steep road, in, steep trail enthusiasts coming in here to, uh, to have a beer after they've been out there. That's awesome. And I like that you guys are using mountain bikes for riding mountains because I think like 98% of all people who own a mountain bike have never rode it on a mountain. Hmm. They're really urban tools these days, aren't they? Yeah. For a lot of people. Yeah. Well, then again, I really should talk. I've got a BMX bicycle motocross, which I've been riding. I've been riding BMX my whole entire life, and um, I haven't been on a track in 20 years. So I guess I'm a poser. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm drinking beer, so I'm in the game, right? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic, fantastic. And how did this start? Did you guys... When you were like in your hometowns, like back in like, you know, Ohio and the UK, did you decide like you wanted to come to Japan to start a pub or start a bar or how, how did all this magic start? So I've been in Japan for about 13 years now uh, and about four and a half, maybe five years ago now, I was working in a fairly dull job in, uh, in HR and mm -hmm. I figured I wanted to make a bit of a career change. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just sent an email to Bad Brewing 
in Shizuoka saying, please, can I have a job? Uh, and despite their best efforts to persuade me otherwise, uh, about three months later, I was working there. Oh, were you working for Brian? I was working for Brian. Uh, I know Brian. I was yeah. working at Bear Brewing. Um, I worked there for a year and a half uh -huh. or so. Uh, and then I came back to Tokyo to work at a different brewery here in Tokyo. Um, it wasn't such a good fit. It was a very traditional environment. Uh, and basically, while I was there, I decided that I knew better than everybody else. <laughs> uh, and after having come to that realization, it was the natural next step was for me to open my own brewery. Mm -hmm. uh, and I knew that that was going to be a lot of work. Um, it would be impossible to do by myself. Uh, and about the same time, Daniel had just come back to Japan from a, a very long cycle trip. So we got to talking. We had known each other for quite a long time. Uh, we figured it would be a good, a good fit for us to work together on that. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right. And what is your story? Uh, yeah, I got uh, about 2015, 2016. I just got really burnt out in Japan with my job and, and the way things were going. So, it happens. Yeah, so uh, I don't have kids and, um, you know, I had the time available to me. So I left and went on a long cycle trip. Uh, and I biked from the U.S. down to South America. And, uh, and bike, of course, you mean by bicycle. Yeah, on a bicycle. Okay. Yeah, about 23,000 kilometers total. Um, so that was great. That was cool. It's better than working, uh, but obviously it takes uh, you know a bit of freedom from responsibilities and time and money and that kind of stuff. Uh, anyway, so I came back to Japan after that, and uh, yeah, I was a, a bit at loose ends, and I was looking for some positions, and I was doing some work with the company I worked with before, uh, and Matthew was looking to start this up, and I was looking for something to do as well. And again, like you know, as Matthew kind of alluded to, we I, we feel like we get along in a way that would make us good business partners in addition to being just good friends. Mm. Uh, I don't think all friendships are like that, but we feel like ours was. Uh, so yeah, so we got talking to it and he was in a place where he wanted to do something and I was in a place where I wanted to do something. We thought it would work out well together, so here we are. That's awesome, that's awesome. When you were traveling from uh, North America to South America, well Central and South America, did you document your trip? Like, um, did you make a video or something or get sponsorship or anything like that? Or were you just like a man on a mission? Yeah, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I kept a diary basically, but uh, initially I thought about, I was trying to do a website and things like that, but I'm sure as you know from podcasting, like, it's work. It's not, it's not a hobby, right? <laughs> it's not a hobby. I mean, it's a hobby, but it's a hobby of love. Like, I mean, there's no sure. way to make money it's off it. Once you start making money from it, you're just like, well, I guess this is kind of nice. Now it pays for beer and that's good. Yeah. <laughs> but you do it because you love it. For sure, yeah. But it takes, uh, it takes a fair amount of time. And yeah, it I does. found that, uh, trying to do the website that I had originally started with another friend here in Japan, uh, in addition to cycling, you know, 100 whatever kilometers a day, in addition to like setting up camp and tearing down camp and cooking all my own food and, you know, shopping on the days when I needed to and all the other stuff. Plus like, you know, you want to see shit, right? Yeah. And you want to drink beer and you want to do all these other things. And I found that uh, even just maintaining a basic website, doing gear reviews or keeping up a journal, like, you need to spend time on that every day, mm -hmm. like an hour every day or mm -hmm. more than that. So it ended up being like a guilty backlog of, oh, I haven't done this in a week or two weeks or whatever. And eventually mm -hmm. I was like, this is dragging me down. Uh, so anyway, long answer to a, to a short question. No, I did not document it <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, like no, say, that's you know, awesome. You know from doing the podcast, like it's work, right? It's not. Oh, I've been doing this since 2009. Yeah. I, so I, I started time, exactly yeah. the same time Joe Rogan started. But he took off and... Um, yeah, we kind of took off. We're like the Joe Rogan of Asia. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Why not, right? That's what people call you, right? Yeah, well, sure. it's what we call each other. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, 
So, okay, what is the most important thing for you guys when it comes to brewing? Uh, brewing a beer that people are going to want to drink, I suppose. Um, I see a lot of new breweries starting up at the moment, and they get very focused on the story of their beer. Yes. So, for example, we have a grain farm. We're going to vertically integrate a brewery into our grain farm and use all the grain that we grow ourselves. Mm -hmm to make this beer and then the customers can sit in the tap room and they can look at the grain and they can drink the beer. Fantastic, that's a great story. But not all grain is suitable for beer making. And you might, you might grow some grain one year and then try and make some beer from it and it just doesn't work. And you can't force that story into a bad beer. Nobody's gonna to want to drink it. True. And so for us, it was very important to, first of all, make good beer. People, awesome. people wanted to drink, people in the local Tachikawa area wanted to enjoy and could enjoy. Mm -hmm. And then we could tell a story around it. And I think it's, sorry to cut you off, I think it's mm -hmm. important to, like a lot of our decisions have been informed by the fact that we feel like a lot of our customers coming in here are going to be new craft beer people. Uh, people who, you know, just, just go in and order, you know, five jockeys of whatever nama is on tap in their local izakaya. These are not people who, you know, we get beer nerds in, like we get people who are really into it and know what styles they like and know how beer is made. We get those people as well. But we knew that we were gonna get a lot of new customers in also. And mm -hmm. so we wanted to make like, you know, speaking about our beer specifically, we wanted to make it good craft beer. We wanted to make it interesting and good for the craft beer heads. But we also wanted to make it accessible for non-craft beer people. Mm -hmm. So like if our first beer is like some you know, whiskey barrel sour or something like that. It's like that might be a really nice beer and people might really enjoy it. But like if you're a new craft beer drinker coming from like Ichiban Shibori and you have a glass of that and it costs you 1,200 yen, like are you gonna be turned off craft beer permanently? Or are you gonna that come sets back? That's that first impression for you and are you gonna be like, this craft beer is weird and I don't like it and it's too expensive for me. So we wanted to make beer that was good that we wanted to drink but was also very accessible. That's awesome. That's a really, really good point. Yeah, I, I think a lot of places do do stuff like that where they have like this really weird beer. So when you go in there and they have this like niche beer, like there's this place in, um, okay, I'm in Nakamegro, right? And there's like this kind of like craft beer place that's there, but all the craft beer just tastes so strong. It's like eight, nine percent, right? So, and I can drink that stuff. I drink a lot of beer. This whole podcast is about beer, so I got it, you know? But the thing is, it's just if I'm like a guy from off the street, I'm like, oh, this place looks cool. Okay, and I come in and I have a beer. I'm like, oh, what the heck? All of these beers taste like this? They're not coming back, you yeah. know? They don't have like a beer that's kind of like on the level that everybody can enjoy, sure. right? And I think that's what this beer is. This beer right here is an amazing craft beer. And I'm a guy that drinks a lot of beer, as I just said. And this beer right here tastes fantastic. And I can enjoy this as, as I guess, an expert, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but as a guy that's, I've been around the, uh, I've been around the block, mm, right? Sure. Or I can even appreciate this if I was like a guy that just came off uh, from the street and I'm just like, oh, I just had a terrible day of work, oh my God. Do you guys got a beer, this one? Okay, great. And if I have it, I'm like, this is fantastic, what is this? Yeah. And then you're like, this is our flagship beer. They're gonna be like, holy smokes, I'm hooked. Mm. Yeah, that's I think it's pretty awesome. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is the one to go with. I mean, holy smokes, what's the name of this again? Shibasaki Session. Shimasaki Session. Wow, now that sounds sexy. You gotta say that with some attitude. Shimasaki Session. Yeah, oh my god, it's like porno. Porno <laughs> for the ears. <laughs> I love it, it's great. Oh man. So, are you guys using any Japanese ingredients for your beers other than just, you know, the water? 
Well, the water is the most important ingredient. In that's beer, true. Right? That's true. Uh, beer is what eighty eighty five percent water. Mm -hmm. um, but for for the rest of the ingredients, uh, no, we use imported uh, ingredients for the most part. Currently. Uh, currently. The, the malt that we use comes from the UK. For this one, we used a malt called Maris Otter, mm -hmm. which is a, a very traditional style of, of ale malt from the UK. Uh, the hops that we used for this one came from the US, from mm -hmm. uh, the Yakima Valley, that kind of Washington area. So it is a combination of both worlds. Absolutely. Fantastic, I love it. Uh, and this one actually uses Scandinavian yeast. So we're, we're pulling in from, from all around the world uh, for that one, we're using something called Kvik yeast, which is originally Kvik. Yeah, it's a, a Norwegian style yeast. Marvelous! And this was your idea. Yes, yes, that's right. So um, when I last went back to the UK, uh, I visited a local brewery in Edinburgh called Campervan Brewery, uh, and they reminded me a lot. Of, this was before we opened this place, but they reminded me a lot of what the kind of thing that we wanted to do here. Mm -hmm. It was a small community brewery, very much part of uh, Leith, which is the part of Edinburgh where I was, uh, and their flagship beer was something called Leith Juice. Uh, I just thought it was a fantastic beer. It was super drinkable, mm -hmm. but also very flavorsome. It had a definite orange characteristic to it. I think they actually use real orange juice or orange zest mm -hmm. in the beer to get that. Uh, and so when we were thinking about the first beer that we wanted to make, um, I was, let's say, I was inspired by Leith Juice. Um, I wanted to do something along those lines. So something that was very drinkable, but also very flavorsome, uh, and had a little bit of an orange character to it. Um, we didn't use any actual orange in this, mm -hmm. um, but we used uh, a kind of hop called Amarillo, which I think has a, a kind of an orangey kind of character to it. It, does, it is kind of acidic. There is a little bit of acid, acidity in there. Yeah. Uh, and that's also from the yeast. So this creek yeast um, also gives it a little bit of an orangey, estery kind of flavor as well, and a, a tiny bit of funkiness as well. I love funky beer. Man, is it difficult to import ingredients into Japan, especially right now since we're like, you know, kind of deep in the COVIDs? So we don't import the ingredients, but we buy them from the importers. and. Uh, there hasn't been an awful lot of disruption yet. Um, mm -hmm. We don't tend to buy these things you know, as needed, but the importers will have them on stock here in Japan. That's fantastic. Um, but I, I imagine there will be some, some disruption in the future. Uh, and then, of course, once Brexit happens, that's going to be a whole other headache uh, because a lot of the ingredients, especially the malt, does come from the UK. Oh, man, uh, that brewmaster's got to open up the books. You got to start writing. <laughs> if it suddenly becomes a lot more expensive to use British malt, well, we're just going to have to switch to a different kind of malt at that point. Sometimes you got to take one step back to take two steps forward. So maybe you come up with like an even better beer. I mean, it's hard to imagine because this beer here is like really nice. I mean, this is my first time trying this, and it's not going to be the last today. <laughs> so um, yeah, absolutely. But that's. That's great. And speaking of that, I got a question regarding how potent is this beer? Most most like uh, craft beers are around six, seven percent. How percentage, or what's the percentage of this beer? Uh, it's 4.5%. 4.5? And that's why we call really? it a, a session beer, right? Because you can drink a lot of it. You can have a proper session with it. Uh, and it goes back to the point that Daniel was making earlier about accessibility, right? We want people to be able to come in here and to be able to enjoy 
you know, a lot of this beer. Yeah. While, while some Japanese people have a pretty strong head for alcohol, when, when we were making the beer, we wanted to make something that, that everybody could enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we chose to do it at this mm-hmm. slightly lower ABV, but mm-hmm. still with a very full mm-hmm. flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, we do also sometimes have in beers that have a, a very high ABV though. We've had in beers 8.59%. Yeah, yeah. Beer. And I know the stereotype is that Japanese people don't like to drink a lot of alcohol or can't drink a lot of alcohol. But actually, I would say that those kind of beers attract a lot of attention. Yeah, and some of our fastest sellers when we have high alcohol beers. So these are guest beers, right? Not yeah. We buy them from other breweries. But yeah, we've had in some... It's the highest we've had, 9%. 9%, I think it is. 9% is incredible. I think anything over 8 is just a little, it's a little much. I mean, then you start tasting the alcohol instead of the beer, right? Depends on the beer, how it's made. But yeah, I, I mean, obviously they can have more of a boozy character to them, for sure. Yeah, I don't like beers that taste like vodka. Like, I, I, was, in, uh, I was in Michigan a while back, and I was at this, this very famous microbrewery bar, right? And anyway, I got this one beer because I mean I, I didn't know when they had like all these names. Like they have like honey beer and honey bear and this and that or whatever. And I was like, okay, great. Um, I'll just take whatever you recommend. And they gave me this one beer, and I had a sip of it. I was like, this tastes like vodka. And they're like, yeah, because it's like 9.5%. And I'm like, oh, 9%. I mean, let's that's... be honest though, you didn't have just one beer, did you? I totally did not. <laughs> <laughs> I totally did not. But I mean, I mean, yeah, you're right. Okay. But yeah, but sure, you, you didn't want to start off with a 9.5%. No, you never want to start off at 9%. You kind of want to start off with like a light lager and then work your way up. Like yeah, a lager, then an sure. IPA. And if you're if you're feeling a little frisky, maybe go for like a porter or a stout and then back to a lager, you know? I like to kind of like juggle it when yeah. I'm drinking, you know? I mean, if I'm going to drink one beer all night, it's probably going to be, I don't know, it'd probably be not a grapefruit IPA, but kind of like, I don't know, maybe a funky IPA or I go and just drink lager all night, you know? Yeah. But um, if I'm mixing it, you know, starting off with like a high, like a high level, then again, sometimes starting off with a very high level alcoholic drink is actually a good way to start the night. Well, I mean, I guess if you want to have a rager, I don't know, it really depends on which way you want to party. But yeah, for me, if I'm hanging out with friends and I'm just drinking and stuff with my buddies, yeah, that's not the way to go. But if I'm going to go to a club and I'm going to drink like massively, that's the way to start the night. So I guess uh, however you want to. Turn your boat, I guess. <laughs> when I was in uh, uh, Central and South America, I went to a lot of craft beer places, obviously, because yeah. I love it. And so obviously I'm going to seek it out. And I heard stories from a lot of the brewers and the bar owners that said that uh, because a lot of the, the, the macro beers down there are quite light, they're like two and a half, three, three and a half percent. Really? And people will, you know, when they have a day off, a lot of people will drink all day. Like they will start drinking in the morning and they'll drink all day. And you can do it because it's three percent beer. Like and they have the siesta, right? Light. Yeah. So they were saying that a big issue with craft beer that they have had in their bars and their tap rooms is uh, people just not understanding that 7.5% beer or an 8.5% beer or an 11% barley wine is much stronger than what they're used to. So I had a lot of funny stories about, well, I don't know how funny they were, but stories about people, you know, wetting themselves at the bar and stuff like that just because they sat down, had five beers, which they, you know, will do normally in an afternoon, but these are all 7 8% double IPAs. Uh, so I think that the issue of people not knowing what craft beer is and not knowing how strong a beer is going to affect them, I think, is uh, widespread, right? And as, mm-hmm. as people get more aware of craft beer and more aware of how strong a beer is, how, how strong beers can get and pay more attention to the ABV, then uh, hopefully you don't see those kind of problems. No one's pissed themselves in here yet. So, you know, that's good. Well, that is Talk good. that up to, uh, I don't know, 
our solid bartending skills. We've only been here for six months. <laughs> it's it's a matter of time. The day is young. At the yeah. moment, Dan and I swap on day two days on, two days off. So I'm really hoping that it happens on one of your days. Yeah, well, yeah, that feeling is definitely mutual. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they're going to be Johnny, Johnny today. Well, Maybe. I don't know. I mean, this is 4.5 percent, but I looked over here. You've got the Stone Delicious IPA at 7.7 percent, and 77 is a really nice number for me. Yeah, I was born in 77. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an old guy. Um, Coming back to beers, um, what is your opinion regarding beers in cans versus beers in bottles? Because a lot of uh, microbreweries are switching from bottles to cans recently. And I, I gotta say, at first I wasn't a fan, but now I kind of am. It's kind of nice to have a couple of cans in your bag instead of bottles, because if you're going somewhere, especially you guys cycling, you don't want to like go up like a hill and hear ching, 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 ching. A couple of cans, they don't make any noise. Sure, stealthy like a ninja. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's how we roll at Cafe de Japan. Can I ask you uh, why you didn't like the idea at first? You said you preferred bottles? Just, like, you know, tradition. You, you know, think it's like classier in some ways? Not classy, but I mean, the whole idea of the bottle is when you hold a bottle, you hold it by the uh, neck, right? Mm -hmm. And when you hold it by the neck, you don't get the bottle warm, right? Because, I mean, that's why we have the neck, because yeah. your hand heats up the beer, which alters the taste and, of course, the temperature. So if you hold it by the neck, you can drink it, it's colder for a longer amount of time. So that's kind of one reason why I like the bottles, mm -hmm. if I'm outside. If I'm inside, it doesn't really matter because I usually pour it into a glass. But um, I don't know. I, I guess maybe just tradition yeah. overall. But now I kind of dig the cans, and I'm an artist, so I do like the can art. I mean, sure. some of these, some of these um, breweries are using so beautiful, beautiful graphics. I mean, I think the graphics are better than the beer sometimes. I mean, can you really judge a book by the cover? Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. But I mean, some of these are just beautiful. Some of them look like they're like pages from a comic book that's just ripped off, pasted on the can, and they have a name on it, like Schlitzer or something, right? Yeah. And I dig it. But we find that can art, uh, you know, oftentimes has a connection to sales as well. Hmm. That people will, like a really nice looking, attractive can, people will buy it over something that's maybe a little, little more subdued. You need to have both though. You need to have the good can art and the good beer inside and then, uh, then you're gonna be a big success. Well, that keeps them coming back. So you're, you're right that um, bottles are probably a bit more thermally protective than mm. cans, um, but uh, although you know beer bottles are brown, do you know why beer bottles are brown? Well, they're brown and they're green, and that's because of the different kinds of beer and the sunlight, right? The UV light kind of like changes the beer over time, doesn't it? That's right, yeah. So green or any, any color other than brown is not going to block any UV light. Mm -hmm. So it's a choice at that point. And that's why very few beers come in green or, or even clear bottles. Mm. Uh, there is one famous beer that comes in clear bottles. Its name is on all of our lips at the moment. Fantastic marketing by them. Budweiser! No, viral, viral marketing, <laughs> if you will. Um, Corona beer yes. in, a, in a clear bottle. And it has quite a distinctive skunky taste. Until right? you put a lime in it. Until you put a lime in it. I don't think you should have to put lime in beer in order to make it drinkable. Mm -hmm. But that is true. And that skunky taste is actually a product of the clear bottles. Are so you serious? Because they get hit by the UV light, that causes a skunky flavor. So UV is another ingredient in the beer. That's right. <laughs> the, uh, right. The sun is very much a silent partner in their brewery. That's um, the ninja. <laughs> um, so one of the big problems with bottles is that they are always going to let in a little bit of UV light. They don't block it completely. Whereas a can being opaque, doesn't let in any light and so the beer will stay fresh for longer in there. That's true. And cans are more economic too. 
they're lighter, right? So they cost less to travel, mm -hmm. um, less to transport, um, less, less in fuel, for mm -hmm. example, if you are moving them around. Uh, and they are more convenient, I think, as well. You don't need a special opener. For the consumer, yeah. For the consumer, yeah. They're more, more convenient for the consumer. One of the reasons, though, that a lot of breweries initially started bottling the beer is that you can bottle beer almost with a homebrewing setup. You don't need any kind of special equipment, really. Now the coopers that everybody uses. In bottles. Um, you just need uh, something to, to pop the caps on, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. with canning, you need specialized equipment to do it. That's true. So it's becoming more popular now as uh, companies, equipment companies are developing canning lines with a smaller footprint or at a lower entry cost and they're making them more acceptable to, to small enterprises like us. Hmm, interesting. Does it affect the taste? Like, is there like different kinds of cans that affect different kinds of taste? For example, I mean, I mean, they're all tin, right? No, they're aluminum. They're aluminum? Yes. Really? So, but I mean, Wait, from what I understand, okay, there's different kinds of cans, and the cans have different kinds of like, uh, in kind of like a paste on the inside or something on the inside that affects the taste. So for example, if you buy, let's just say, for example, an Asahi Super Dry in Japan, but then you buy an super, Asahi Super Dry in the States, and maybe in Germany, you're gonna have three different tastes from three different cans. Would that be the can's fault, or would that be the water that it's brewed in? Or is it shipped that way? I don't know. A yeah, sorry, go ahead. A lot of the major manufacturers are, are doing contract brewing in whatever country they're mm -hmm. in. So like they're not sending Asahi from Japan because it's not cost effective. They have a brewery in America mm -hmm. that would be brewing Asahi to their recipe and putting it in cans. But, so it is the water. So yeah, it could be any number of things. Different process, different <sighs> brewery, it could be different cans. Like it could be a... So I thought it was factors. the can, yeah. A, a, a brewery like the size of Asahi or Sapporo, I don't imagine that they are exporting that because the cost of sending that beer would be astronomical. Yeah, of course. Like you could just send the recipe, you know, and a couple of your brewers to whatever massive brewery in Germany and mm -hmm. make all of the beer you need for the European market. Yeah. Much cheaper. And I'm asking this because like, I drink Asahi Super Dry. It's like kind of like, my, when it comes to like Japanese go-to beers, when you go to the convenience store any time of the day, that's what I get. It's just what I've been doing for the last 18 years. I like it, that's, that's who I am. So anyway, I was in Berlin about two years ago, three years ago, I was there and one of my friends is like, oh Johnny, you got to go to this really delicious ramen restaurant. It's the best Japanese ramen restaurant in uh, Berlin, you got to come. I'm like, okay, great. So we go there and stuff. And um, they had tonkotsu ramen, they had shiro ramen and stuff. So I got a shiro ramen and then I ordered a sahi super dry. I'm like, you guys got to drink this. This is my favorite beer, it's so fantastic. They gave us a bunch of cans. I popped open the can, poured it in a glass, I drank it. I was like, what the, what is this? Hmm. It tasted completely yeah. different than the love that I knew. Right. That's interesting because for very large macro breweries like Asahi, what they deal in is consistency. Yeah, right? right? It's like Starbucks. That's one of the main differences between craft beer and macro beer. Is mm -hmm. You can go to any store anywhere in Japan, any convenience store, and buy a silver bullet and it's going to taste the same. Right? You know that it's going to taste the same. Absolutely. So they deal in volume and they deal in consistency. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of the key differences between them and us. The volume that we're dealing in is nowhere near what they could do even in in one batch at an asahi brewery they're going to be brewing thousands and thousands of liters at a time yeah exactly whereas we're brewing maybe 500 liters mm. at a time here uh, for the time being for the time being that's right yes 
Well, anyway, all right. Well, I thought it was the can, so possibly the water. Who knows? But could also uh, be the can. Could I mean, be the can. Cans would be supplied locally as well, right? Could so, be the can. You're not. You're not wrong, is what I'm saying. Sometimes it's different. Um, local governments or international governments will have different rules about the, the things that you're allowed to put mm -hmm. in beer packaging mm -hmm. as well. So I know that when I worked at the Baird Brewery, we would occasionally export beer. Uh, and when we exported to France, we had to use a different kind of cap because they had a certain rule about what you're allowed to include. What Was it a cork? Allowed. <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> it should have been a cork, yeah. Uh, but the caps that we, we normally used would not be allowed legally in, in France. Um, so That's we strange. have to use a different set of caps for that. Is there a microbrewery alliance? Uh, I, there's, I don't know that there's necessarily large formal organizations. Uh -huh. uh, but, you know, everybody kind of knows each other. And craft beer in Japan is, has a lot of foreigners in it. So yeah. all of the foreigners uh, in craft beer in Japan largely know each other and are friends on Facebook. And mm -hmm. So in terms of talking about the industry and things that are happening, that kind of discussion does happen. But... Um, I know there are some different organizations, but I, I don't know, like, do you know any large organizations of craft beer brewers? Uh, in Japanese, yes. Right. So when I was working at Ishikawa Shuza, we would occasionally go to those kind of meetings, but they were mostly comprised of um, what I would call jibiru companies rather than craft beer companies. Um, would you know the difference between those two terms? Um, I would love to say yes, Good. but no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I would love to explain to you then. So about 20 years ago in Japan, there was kind of a relaxation in the laws around breweries. Uh, and that meant that a lot of small breweries, microbreweries, sprung up all over Japan, selling a product called Jibiru, so local beer. But this was mainly focused on the tourist market, the internal tourist market. So you go to a town that's very famous for its wasabi. Yeah. There'll be a local brewery making a very standard beer and then just dumping some wasabi into it. So it's now a cool little omiyage that you can bring home. Are you serious? Absolutely. Really? I thought there'd be more like a sake kind of thing. Uh, well, I think there are, there are much more strict rules about the purity of, of sake and what you can put into to Nihonshu as opposed to, uh, to beer. Yeah, so beer was seen as almost a kind of a novelty product and you True. go to the okay. town that's famous for strawberries and get mm -hmm. a strawberry beer you can go to the town that's famous for gyoza and get a gyoza mm -hmm. beer sure that you've seen around like Kamakura for example you can find Kamakura beer in the fridges yeah um, is right? it ninja it's beer called, from Kamakura maybe yeah but like there's one specifically called Kamakura beer and that's from Ishikawa Shuza isn't it it was yeah we yeah. made it there trade secret wasn't actually made in Kamakura it was made you heard it here. Yes. So there's a lot of this stuff, like wherever you go, you know, small kind of touristy town is going to have like town name beer or, mm -hmm. or yeah, like you said, if it's famous for strawberry, it's going to have a strawberry beer or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would call Jibiru. And that was the first movement away from macro beer in mm -hmm. Japan. But then maybe over the course of the last five years or so, um, of course it existed before that, but there's been a real explosion in craft beer since then, which is an altogether different product. And it's been very informed by craft beer movements overseas, mostly from America. And the sort of craft beer that you would get there that is made from you know, very carefully selected ingredients and crafted to produce very intense and very enjoyable flavors has started to take off in Japan. And uh, one of the reasons that you see so many non-Japanese people in the industry is because homebrewing is illegal well, homebrewing anything stronger than 1% is illegal. And so 
anybody who has studied how to brew beer in Japan is probably going to go and work at one of the big boys, right? You go to a special college to learn how to make beer, and then you're going to want a job that is going to pay you fairly well, and that means you're probably going to end up working at Kirin or Asahi or Sapporo. Mm-hmm. But a lot of non-Japanese people do have, well, sorry, not a lot, but many more non-Japanese people do have experience in homebrewing. And it's not that difficult to transition from homebrewing experience to craft brewing experience. Mm-hmm. It's the same process, just on a slightly larger scale. Yes, of course. And that's why you see so many non-Japanese people in the industry here, I think. Okay, interesting. Okay, so, but you think it's mostly like international people that are starting bars and restaurants and stuff opposed to Japanese people? No, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that the industry is at all dominated by non-Japanese people. Uh, but the proportion of non-Japanese people is much higher in this industry than it would be in almost any other industry in Japan. Okay. You know, there are a lot of non-Japanese people working in craft beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there are more Japanese people because we live in Japan and that's most of the people here are Japanese. But when you look at the... For the, the time being, right? <laughs> when you look at the number of uh, non-Japanese people uh, in craft beer, it is, it is surprisingly high. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I mean, if, if you just look at our menu at the moment, so we have six craft beers on from uh, Japanese breweries at the moment. Number one and number three are both made by us. So of course, mm-hmm. those are non-Japanese people. Number two, Bad Brewing, as you mentioned, Brian Bad is American. Number four, Portentious, that's from Devilcraft, run by three Americans. Number five, Norwegian Red is from Shiokaze Brula, which is run by Chris Poole, an American who used to work at Bad. And number six, Obsession, uh, is a brewery from Wakayama, which is run by two Americans and one Japanese guy. Mm-hmm. So it could be that we've got a self-selecting group here, and it's just that we know all these guys, <laughs> so we're choosing yeah, to sell their beer here. Yeah. But every single one of our Japanese guest beers those breweries are either owned or run by uh, non-Japanese people. And we do order, we have a lot of good relationships with other good Japanese-owned craft breweries as well, like Repub Brew and Numazu makes really great beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nara Brewing, we really like everything they make. Numazu Craft, we order a lot from them also. Kyoto Brewing. Kyoto Brewing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we have, uh, we order from a lot of uh, different breweries, but there, there are a lot of foreigners in craft beer in Japan, for sure. Wow, that's surprising, wow. Um, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about the business. Is it difficult to open a craft brewery in Japan? I think it's a challenge to open almost any kind of business in Japan. Uh, there's a lot of uh, bureaucratic red tape that you have to deal with in order to get the kind of licenses that you need and, and open your business. And there's a lot of things that seem in some ways like maybe insurmountable catch-22s at times. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's challenging. It's a it's a steep road. It's a sakabichi, um, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, you you got you got to fight through. You know, you got to accept that that's how it is in Japan, and yeah. do the run around to all the different offices and try and try and nail people down on a firm answer that they don't want to give you to the various questions that you have, and you know you'll fill out all the paperwork uh, three times, and every time you go to turn it in, there'll be something else wrong. But eventually, you will find the couple people in each office that are friendly and helpful and they will help you to get things right and uh yeah i mean it's i I think oftentimes it feels like beating your head against the wall uh but you do make we did make progress through it i mean we're here we're open so yeah uh we got through it eventually but uh but yeah i mean it's it can be frustrating i'm sure um but uh but it can be done yeah what is the biggest challenge 
Just like all the footwork, going from like place to place to place to place to place. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've probably like worn out your hunko stamp, you know, signing papers and documents stuff. When it started, it was this long. It's now whittled down. <laughs> oh, really? You mean the biggest challenge to specifically to opening a brewery? Well, let's say brewery. Well, I'm asking this question on a couple of different levels. A, I'm interested, and B, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are probably thinking about coming to Japan and maybe starting like a clothing business or maybe a brewery or a bar or a restaurant. I mean, a lot of people come to Japan and they want to open a restaurant. Let's be honest. Everybody has this idea that if they come to Japan and they open an Italian restaurant with Italian pizza, that's completely different and stuff. Because I've met these people so many different times and it is a good idea and I wish them the best of luck. But a lot of people are like in their home country right now making a business plan like, okay, I'm doing this, 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 but you guys have already done it. What could you recommend? So one of the things that we found uh, that was a little surprising was the level of detail that we were required to go into for things that you know were, were very difficult to predict. So for example, our marketing plan for the first 12 months, when we were talking to some government agencies about potentially getting some funding to open the brewery, they wanted to know who are you going to sell the beer to? How are you going to target these people? What surveys have you done? make sure that these people really exist and at, at some point you just have to pull those numbers out of your ass right they don't exist the brewery, the brewery didn't exist yet you mean supposedly air quotes in the air right <laughs> before we had we use complicated mathematical formulas to arrive exactly. at exactly absolutely is, true numbers we have no idea who <laughs> listens to this this is the secret to economics this is the secret to all economics at some point some economist somewhere is pulling numbers out of their ass <laughs> the and, answer is 10 <laughs> <laughs> and so you know I would of course think about it very carefully and I would I would weigh up all the different factors and I would look at other bars and other business cases and I would write down some numbers and I would take them to the to the the different government agencies and then we would discuss them in real depth you know how are you going to market to this segment how are you going to market to this segment what about this kind of segment why don't you sell why don't you sell highballs in your bar Japanese people love highballs what do you mean you're not doing food Japanese people love to eat you're not doing food we don't do food no we uh, we let customers bring in whatever food they want so I could order a pizza and bring it in here. You can, yeah. you can have a pizza delivered here, here if you want. Yeah. No kidding. What about finger food? We have nuts. nuts? I'm sure you have nuts as well. Um, everybody likes nuts. Everybody loves nuts. I know a lot of girls that love nuts. And, uh, some guys love nuts. That's, that's true? Yes. Let's, um, so we do, we do some dry foods like that. Um, but basically the idea is that there are so many good restaurants in Tachikawa. Why would we want to compete with them? That's not our speciality. Our speciality is beer. I like that. We make that. good that's beer great. and we sell good beer. And then if you want to bring food in, that's absolutely fine. There are a lot of good restaurants around here that will actually deliver to your table while you sit here. So you just call them up and they will bring the food over to you. And you do the same thing. I mean, basically, if somebody's at a restaurant, they're like, oh, the alcohol in this restaurant is just garbage. It's rubbish. But I do love these nachos. And then they call up your company and you have Uber Eats deliver your beer to their restaurant. Would that we could. So you asked about one of the biggest challenges uh, with regards to opening a brewery, and it's the legal and licensing side. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different licenses that you need in order to be able to operate a brewery. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, there are very good reasons for this. You don't, we're making a product here in a semi-industrial way. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be poisoning people or putting out something that is not safe to drink. Never a good idea. Absolutely not. Uh, and so 
the breweries are much more tightly regulated than a restaurant would be, for example. Uh, one, one really clear example is that there is a minimum production output in order to be able to open a brewery mm-hmm. in Japan. Uh, if you're making haposho, you need to make 6,000 liters of it a year. And if you're making beer, you need to make 60,000 liters of it a year. 60,000? Which is actually quite a lot of yeah. beer. It's a lot of beer. Think about it. So not only do you need to make 60,000 liters, you also need to sell 60,000 liters and pay taxes on that 60,000 liters of beer. So you're guaranteed to pay taxes on 60,000 liters every single year, year as a minimum. In order to qualify for your license, yes. Wow, holy smokes, that's a challenge. It is, yes, and it's one of the biggest barriers to entry that there is for new breweries that are trying to start up. Yeah, definitely. So that's not something that exists, for example, for a restaurant. Yeah. Restaurants <laughs> do not have a minimum, you need to sell this many hamburgers every year. In order Unless they're like your McDonald's. <laughs> 60,000, that's a weekend. <laughs> right. So that's one of the biggest differences. Uh, and then also, the ways that we sell our beer are mm-hmm. tightly regulated. So we need one license to sell draft beer in this space. We need another license for people to buy cans or bottles and to take them out of here. Uh, we need a different license for people to be able to fill up growlers uh, and take them out. If we wanted to sell our beer, to deliver our beer to other restaurants, that would be another license that Mm -hmm. we would need. If we want to sell our beer through the internet or um, by telephone or catalog or what have you, we can sell it currently within Tokyo. But if somebody from outside of Tokyo wants to order some of our beer, we need a separate license. How many licenses do you guys have at the moment? Uh, We have three licenses at the moment. One of our takeout license is a temporary one for a uh, kind of coronavirus situation. Basically, they started nice. issuing uh, like catch-all carry-out licenses so that places could move stock and stay in business, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that one covers a lot of bases for us uh, right now for as long as it lasts. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of helped us out a little bit, right? It's a little bit of an umbrella license. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Um, another thing, if somebody wants to open a business in Japan right now, they're, let's say they're in Ohio or Michigan, or let's just say somewhere in uh, Scandinavia or someplace, do they need to speak Japanese to come here to open a brewery or a restaurant? I mean, of course it helps, but is it a necessity? I mean, you would need to hire someone who speaks Japanese if you don't, because going to the, the various city offices to do mm-hmm. the things that you need to do, you might get lucky and have an office that has someone that speaks English in it, but uh, I think that's, that's not common. So if you don't speak Japanese and you were coming to start a business, you can, you, there are plenty of services that you can pay to do mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Just straight up translators will come with you. You can hire like legal scriveners that will come and they know the ins and the outs of the process. Obviously, mm-hmm. their expertise costs a bit more, but uh, I would say if you need someone on your team who speaks Japanese, right? At the very least, even if you don't speak Japanese, you need to present legal documents that are written in Japanese mm-hmm. to found your business. And if you can't read what those say, mm-hmm. that could cause a lot of problems for you. Oh yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I'll send anything. <laughs> oh man. Um, what else would you recommend for somebody that wanted to come to Japan and open a business? Uh, have a very solid plan about what you intend to do. Um, I don't think it's enough to just uh, come to Japan and open a business because you are not Japanese. Mm-hmm. You need to have a plan that would work in any country. Right. I think that what we're doing here could be successful in the US, mm. although the market is a lot more crowded there, and it could be successful in the UK. 
it's not enough that we're just two Westerners who like beer. Mm -hmm. We also needed to have a very solid business plan about how this place was going to operate. And what was your business plan exactly? Um, to be part of the local community here. Um, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the details of, of how we make the money, right? But uh, at the moment, we sell beer, mm -hmm. right? We, we make some of the beer and then we buy some of the beer and we sell it to people in the local community. Um, ideally, we would like to be making a lot more beer here and then selling it to local bars and restaurants in Tachikawa. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we chose this location is because, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of good restaurants here in Tachikawa. And I think people in Tachikawa also like to support Tachikawa businesses, don't yeah. they? That's one of the things we've really found here is that people are proud of Tachikawa and they like to do stuff that has the Tachikawa name associated with it. So we want to establish ourselves as of the Tachikawa Brewery and hopefully we can supply our beer to all of the good bars and restaurants that are here in Tachikawa and then they'll be able to sell it as very much as the Campervan Brewery in Leith. Did. And yeah. local festivals as well when they happen. Yeah, you guys do a lot of little festivals and you guys always are, are having events. Like um, you guys do like the picnic camping event or something? Yeah, we did Tokyo picnic, uh, was that just last weekend? Like a long time ago. <laughs> I think it was last weekend, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was supposed to be Saturday, Sunday. They ended up canceling Saturday because the typhoon came through, but luckily it cleared up enough to hold the event on Sunday. So that was our first uh, outside of the taproom event that we had ever done. And, uh, you know, it was good for us. Like, we learned a lot, but mm -hmm. part of our, as Matthew said, like, we want to be the local brewery. So, like, accessible pricing for non craft beer drinkers is part of that. And being present in all local events is part of that as well. There's a shrine near here. There's a few big festivals. Normally, there's a few big festivals every year. And this street is just littered with people uh, for the festival. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. So the part of our choosing this location was to be in that kind of general festival area two times a year. We feel like by being present at those events, both big events and small events in Tachikawa, and it's also why we have two people is that we can be open here and we can go do a little event in the park if we want to. Mm. Uh, but people will see us. And as Matthew said, with the Leaf Juice beer in Edinburgh, being a part of the local community that people see Sakamichi Brewing and go, uh, these are the Tachikawa beer guys. You know, I think that's a fantastic strategy because a lot of people, when they come to Japan, they want to open a business. They want to keep it in like, let's just say Shibuya, Harajuku, Shinjuku, like the main places. But within the main places, there's just a great deal of competition. Sure. Being out here in an area that's blowing up with popularity, I mean, I'm sure the housing here is a lot cheaper. There's a lot of people that just are deciding to come out here to open up cool businesses such as yourself. That kind of like eliminates a lot of the competition and let's just say a lot of the baloney and you guys are basically kind of like capitalizing on that which is like an amazing strategy because this city right here in probably the next 10 years might be like the shibuya of west tokyo right absolutely there's a lot of people here and there's not a lot of craft beer i think the other repub brew is another brewery that we order from started by a very young japanese guy and he yeah. makes great beer but he put his tap room in numazu he's not from numazu uh, but he, you know, he had a real clear plan for his brewery, his tap room, his restaurant, everything. And he went looking for a place uh, similar to what we did in Tachikawa. It was like a lot of people interested in craft beer, kind of underserved market. Uh, and he's doing great there. Awesome. That's fantastic. If you guys could do it all over again, what would you do differently? Well, we've only been here for six months. So um, all the mistakes that we've made, we've yet to repeat. Right, um, mm. it's it's hard to think of anything that we would go back and uh, and change. Um, 
I mean, one of the, the things that we haven't been able to do yet is to put the brewery in, right? So at the moment we're sitting in our tap room and then the space behind us here is the space where the brewery is going to go, um, but it's not in there yet. It's like in his apartment, right? <laughs> um, so we, we haven't been able to, to get the, the license yet for actually brewing the beer here and we haven't been able to get the funding for, for, for building the brewery yet. So that's the next step. That's the, next the next step. step there's doing. always another step, right? Absolutely. Yeah, with every business, there's, there's no finish line, really. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, well guys, um, it's 12 o'clock. You guys are gonna open in about one minute. Yeah. So uh, I wanna say thank you very much. Um, um, what I really want you to do right now is plug this beautiful establishment. How can people find this? Uh, you can find us on all social media, We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We have a website. It's all, I think if you search Sakamichi Brewing, uh, we're on Google Maps. Uh, you can find us pretty much anywhere there. We do regular posts on, on all social media sites. Uh, we put our tap list up, new beers. We talk about events that are happening. Um, so yeah, that's, that's probably the best way to find us. We're a seven minute walk from the south exit of Tachikawa Station. What else? That's it. Yeah, just come out to Tachikawa. Come and have a beer with us. Um, we're open every day from 12 uh, at the moment on weekdays we close at 8 and then at the weekends uh, we close at 10 so Friday, Saturday, Sunday we close at 10 uh, and now that Japan is starting to sort of get back to normal we're going to be out at a lot more events as well so we had our first external event last weekend and hopefully there's going to be a lot more of those to come well, that is absolutely fantastic. Thank you guys very much for taking the time. Thank you for these beers. Um, I'm going to stick around and have a couple of more beers and stuff. I know Chris's beer is up there, and I would love to try that, uh, was it the Obsession IPA or Hazy IPA? I'm looking forward to that. Plus, well, why not? I'll have one of each. Come on, one in Rome, right? Faders, thank you very much for tuning into this very, very special episode of Got Faded Japan. I am your host, Johnny. Tom's not here. He's on diaper duty, unfortunately. And um, Faders, if you want to support the show, go down to our Patreon page. Our Patreon page has so much content up there. The video from this will definitely be up there, and we've got a lot of stuff to show. This place is beautiful. It's absolutely spectacular. I really love how the design is very natural and comfortable and just very welcoming. It's really cool. And you got two welcoming staff here that that uh, will pretty much serve you any beer that you wish to have. IPAs, hazelnut, whatever. They got it all here. <laughs> and faders, if you can't sign up for the Patreon page, I know times are tough. Please go down to iTunes, give us a five-star review, write something groovy, and go to our Instagram and our Facebook. All that stuff is free, and we're here to support you. Thank you very much for tuning into this very nice episode of Got Beer Japan. Guys, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the booze. I'm going to stick around. The tab is going to explode, and you guys are going to pay for your kids' college. All right, Vader, see you next week. Peace. In Tokyo and craving soul food, we've got just the place for you. Soul Food House in Azubujuban. Check out what we do at soulfoodhouse.com. Come by and taste the love. We look forward to feeding you. Mitsuya Liquors. Yo, what's up, faders? If you're in Asia, if you're in Japan, if you're in Tokyo, if you're in Asagaya, you better get down to Mitsuya Liquors. That's right. For the most affordable prices in Japan, you can get over 300 different kinds of beer. That's right, over 300 different kinds of beer. And of course, they got all the shochu you need, all the sake you need, and of course, they got wine from California to Italy to France 
to New Zealand. They got it all. When I say they got it all, they really, seriously got it all. There's no joke about that. So get down to Midzia Liquors. And if you go in there and you say, got fit of Japan, you will be more than welcome to go into their back room and drink those beers that you just purchased. That's right. Got fit of Japan at Midzia Liquors. And three times a week, they have a sushi chef there. So get your sushi on, get your drink on, get your fade on, and come on down to Midzia Liquors, located comfortably in Asagaya. About five-minute walk from the station. It's hey, yo, what's up, Vaders? Johnny here. You know I love booze and news, but I also love art. So come on down to thespiltink.com and check my art out. I've got tons of stuff there for you to check out. And I've got paintings, I've got prints, I've got videos. And I tell you what, if you like a painting, I could probably sell it to you. And I tell you what... If I can't sell you that painting, I will definitely sell you a print. I've got prints of all my work. Prints are about 2,000 N each, about 20 bucks. But if you buy two, you get the third one for free. So come on down to thespiltink.com. Yo, and on top of that, I'm looking for commissioned work. So if there's something that you want me to do, I can make it for you. Just check out my stuff and see if you like my style. And if you like my style, I can definitely paint you anything on canvas, paper, whatever. I've done it all. So come on down to thespiltink.com. That is T-H-E-S-P-I-L-T-I-N-K.com. Thespiltink.com. Proper. Are you at Harajuku with some out-of-town friends or your family or significant others? Yeah! Do you want to chill and drink beer and eat sandwiches while your friends overpay for glitter unicorn socks? Yeah! And the flavor's gonna make you complete at Harry's Sandwich Company. So come on down to Harry's Sandwich Company in the heart of Harajuku, right off Takeshita Street. See you there! Yo, what's up, faders? It's your boy, Johnny. I have an opportunity for you. Well, in fact, I have 50 opportunities for you. A few years ago, I painted all 50 American states. And in each and every state, I painted in all major city names, the state's cultural icons, pop culture that pertains to that specific state, and a whole lot more fun, interesting, and educationally groovy stuff. The project took me over eight months to complete, and now they're yours forever. I have digital prints available for download on the Spilt Inks Etsy shop. These prints started off at about five bucks a pop, but not anymore. These high resolution prints are a dollar each. They're yours for a dollar each. So brighten up your walls and expand your mind with your favorite state. These prints are a dollar each and they're worth so much more. These, are, these, these paintings are absolutely incredible. You're gonna love them. And if you don't like the state project, that's cool, that's cool. Johnny still has love for you. But check out the Spilled Inks Etsy shop to find all sorts of other wild art that will save your soul and blow your mind. So go down to the show notes for a direct link to the Spilled Inks Etsy shop. Go there, shop away, support the show because we love you and we love art too. So faders, without further ado, enjoy the show. If you're going to get your fade on, you got to get your fade on in style. And that's why I use Ghost Town Palmade. Ghost Town Palmade is the number one badass palmade, and I practice what I preach. When I leave this house, if I'm not wearing a hat, if I'm not wearing a lid, I'm wearing Ghost Town Palmade in my hair. This stuff is amazing. It smells good, it looks good, and it feels good. Ghost Town Palmade, badass palmade. And let me tell you one thing, it comes in a lid. 
That's pretty badass. This whole world is so nerfed up these days. Everything is plastic and pink, but not Ghost Town Palmade. This stuff is a man's palmade, and it is hardcore. It's so hardcore, it's from Oakland, California. Oakland, California. That's right. Ghost Town Palmade. Get your bait on in style. Papa. Goddamn shit sucking vampire. Oh, you wait till mom finds out, buddy. I've got a government job to abuse and a lonely wife to fuck. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. God, the pressure! I can't take it! I can't take it! I can't stand to it! You sure I should do this, man? We're going freaking! Your move, creep. Oh, man, I will never forgive your ass for this shit. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Ah, fuck it, dude. Let's go bold.